everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the So We Speak podcast, and we have a really special episode for you today. I have two friends who are missionaries in China, and they're spending some time in the United States, and we're getting an opportunity to talk about what things are like over there, how they decided that God was calling them to the mission field, and uh, the work that they're doing. And so I wanted to kick it over to you guys and say, how did you even start to think, maybe God's calling me to go to China? Yeah, well, we're really excited to be here today and to share some of our story with you. And I know I used to always wonder what kind of person even ends up becoming a missionary, and I never thought that that was me. Um, I'm an introvert. I am very close to my family. I have three sisters and always dreamed of living in my hometown the rest of my life, working with my dad as a dentist. But then when I got to college, I went to Texas A&M University. Um, I had a mentor encourage me to go overseas on a mission trip after my sophomore year. And I'm not even sure why I agreed to go um, because it was a mission trip with the church for six weeks in China. We're going to be on a university campus sharing the gospel with students. And yeah, the idea of sharing the gospel with people on a campus was terrifying to me, but I went. And while I was there, I just felt God ask me if I would return there after I graduated. And yeah, that was probably the most terrifying request I could receive from God. And so I came back to college and for my junior year and kind of thought, if this is a serious calling on my life, I need to do it here at Texas A&M, where I'm most comfortable, where I already have a church and friends and things, and just found um, my eyes were open to the nations on campus and ended up making a lot of international friends and saw a lot of students come to Christ from China and South Korea and India and Iran and just felt God confirming that this is what he wanted me to do. And so, yeah, I wanted to go back to China and through some leaders at my church, they connected me to a team doing church planting work there. And so I moved shortly after graduation um, to join a team with an organization there and yeah, have loved living there, learning the language and um yeah, that's a little bit of how I got there. Yeah, I can backtrack and tell a little bit of my story. I think my sense of calling to the nations might have begun a little bit earlier. As young as elementary school or junior high, I think there's an attraction towards other cultures and other languages. My mom teaches English as a second language. And both my parents did a great job of just connecting with people from other cultures who speak different languages. We had family friends from India and Mexico, and we'd have Fulbright scholars from Korea come through our house when I was young. And so I think there is an interest cultivated from a young age. Um, I don't think I would have said automatically that meant I wanted to be a missionary, but there's at least that interest and some kind of seed planted there. By the time I got to the end of high school, I knew that I was very interested in ministry and very interested in business, but wasn't exactly sure how they were going to fit together. And as I went into college, I started studying entrepreneurship and was enjoying my business classes and learning about 
all different skills, especially around entrepreneurship, but was also working in the international office. And my closest friends and the community that I felt most connected to in college was all the international students and my coworkers there. And so in some ways felt pulled in different directions throughout college. But it, it set me up so that by the end, I, I knew that I, I did want to make a stab at integrating some of these things. And so I was connected through friends at church with a team that was working uh, all across Asia doing a lot of really neat businesses mission stuff. They've started businesses all across Asia, have seen some really cool church planning movements happen, lots of disciples made, and really neat work. And I just wanted to learn. And so I moved to China with a entirely different team and different organization than my now wife. Both of us are from the same small area of Texas growing up, never knew each other growing up. We moved to China and in fact to the same city in China independently and quote unquote coincidentally the same weekend. So we had no idea who the other person was, but we both came from small towns in Texas and arrived in China within hours of each other. And a friend of mine connected the two of us uh, through a, a message on Instagram saying that, I think all of you just moved to the same city. You should hang out sometime. So it didn't take long before we grabbed dinner, ate some hot pot, and over time figured out that we wanted to date. Moved back to the U.S. and we just got married last fall and we're hoping to return uh, at the end of the summer back to China, Lord willing. It's pretty amazing. You go all the way across the world to meet each other. And uh, when you come back home, obviously your families live relatively close together. What was it like? Obviously, you're experiencing so many new things, being there, um, doing work, not together, but for two different groups, but then also deciding, okay, we want to date. We want to pursue <laughs> a relationship in China. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of life change at once. And... We met only after being in China for three weeks. And so, and well, we discovered we were interested in each other pretty quickly after that. Um, but yeah, adjusting to China overall at that time for me was actually incredibly difficult. Um, just arriving in a place where I couldn't speak English to accomplish daily tasks, not being able to order food, pay my electric bill, just all these things I felt like I was stripped of my personhood and my independence and things. And, and so it was like a difficult transition. And yet I met in the middle of all of it. And so he was, he was a great, um, friend to me in that time. And, but in that we decided that maybe we should wait a little bit before introducing a serious relationship into the mixture of cultural adjustment and things. Um, so we actually decided to wait to start dating. Yeah, and that ended up being an interesting decision because it just just a couple months later, I, I glazed over this in telling the story a second ago, but after I was in China for only about five months, my team decided that we were selling the factory that we we're operating in China and moving to Vietnam. And so I met up with Valerie one day um, as she was between classes and I was leaving work and said, 
So we're moving in just a few weeks to Vietnam. And at that point, we weren't planning on starting dating anytime soon. We knew that we wanted to at some points, but we had put that on pause. And so it was actually this crunch that we weren't expecting to say, we actually probably need to think about sorting through this relationship right now. And wow. if we're really going to try to make this happen, because we certainly can't wait. And so I think before I moved to Vietnam, we went on maybe five dates. Yeah. And then the next eight months of our relationship was between China and Vietnam. So we dated, we like to say we dated between two communist countries. <laughs> um, Making international trips on the weekend to see each other for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was fun, but I'm glad we don't have to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. So you talked about the big life change that's going on. You go cross cultures. And it's one of the things I think people forget about mission work is it's not just that you're going and feeling uncomfortable about the content of your work. Mm-hmm. It's that your whole life changes. Mm-hmm. What, what were some of the things that when you got there, you realized this is really different than what I expected or what were some of the changes that you were experiencing in those first couple of months there that were really difficult or surprisingly good? Give us a sense of what that was like. I know my wife could probably say a lot about that. She had the more immediately difficult transition to China. Yeah, I think I remember on my flight into the city when I was moving, I was the only non-Chinese person on this huge flight and it sunk in before I even landed, like, wow, things are about to be really different. And they were. I mean, I mean, an obvious thing about moving to another country is you have to learn another language. Mm. But that's actually, for most people, a very slow process and makes you feel kind of like a child again, trying to figure out how to express basic things. Except you're an adult, kind of stuck in infant level language for several months and yeah but I mean the Chinese people are just amazed and so excited as soon as you try to even start saying the simplest things to them in Chinese Um, because to them to have an American from the land of opportunity to Mm -hmm. be in their city trying to converse with them on their terms eating their food um, just it's very impactful mm-hmm. to them. Probably opened some doors for opportunities, conversations, mm-hmm. and even in the struggle of trying to describe something or say something, yeah. you get a lot of opportunities to get to know people. I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah, and I could I could even maybe tell a small illustration of just one morning in the life of transitioning to a different country. Overall, my my transition to China went better than I expected. Uh, maybe it was only because I was there for seven months or so and didn't get into the worst of things. But I do remember there was one Saturday morning and I had been there a couple months and I didn't have a local bank account yet. And it's in China, you pay for almost everything with your phone through WeChat. Very few people handle actual paper currency and you can't use debit or credit cards there at all. Um, and so there's certain things, a lot of tasks, especially ordering online, all kinds of other things where I knew I needed a Chinese bank account because Chinese American financial systems are pretty much completely separate. And so I had worked with my tutors the whole week before 
through bank vocabulary, how to say I need an application to open up a checking account. Um, you know, I learned the word passports and different forms of identification that I knew they would ask for and rehearsed this role plated in class that week, all these different things. And so Saturday morning, I left my apartment and caught the metro line close to my apartment into the middle of the city and went to one of the banks and walked in. And of course, immediately everything is different. There's different stations where they're handing you numbers and you go sit in chairs, you know, depending on the number you get from the machine. And they're calling up these different numbers, but of course it's not in your first language and all these different things. But finally figure out that they're calling me up to the window. And so this process begins of me trying to explain that I want to open up a checking account. And eventually I get the application, which of course I don't speak or especially read any Chinese. And so starts trying to fill it out and I'm, I'm pulling out my phone, trying to use some of the Google translating where you can use the camera yeah. and it real time translates stuff. But my, my, it's not working. The, the Google app just completely seems to not work at all. And I've been relying on that to fill in, to know where do I put my last name and first name mm-hmm. and address and all this. So it was getting frustrating and I was obviously holding things up and think I kind of managed to get enough information down the sheet of paper where they seem to be trying to work with me and uh, Chinese people really are kind and do enjoy working with and being around foreigners like us and then finally at the very end he asked something I, I think I thought he was asking for like my student's identification card or like my, my some kind of Chinese ID I said, oh, I don't have that, but I have my American passport. And he said, oh, no, we can't take that as your form of ID. We need Chinese ID. And so basically this 45-minute process ended, <laughs> and I had accomplished nothing. Yeah. This wasn't the first bank I'd actually tried to open up an account at, but the reason I went here is because people said it was easier at this bank. And mm-hmm. So walked out, miserably failed, didn't get the accounts opened, all this stuff, and started trying to open up maps to figure out how to navigate back to my house and figured out that the reason Google Translate hadn't been working was because my phone plan had run out of data. And, I, and my phone was basically just an iPod at that point. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I was just in the middle of this Chinese city, having just failed opening up a bank account. Yeah. And I didn't even know how to get home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I had a rough idea. I was like, I know I need to go north. Right. And, you know, I could probably eventually figure it out, but very discouraging few minutes there. And No kidding. Eventually just said, well, I think I'll just go for a walk. There's a park nearby. So I was just kind of walking around. And in a moment of incredible grace happened to walk past a cafe with a patio where my team leader and his wife and one of their friends were sitting having brunch. Wow. (laughs) And so at that point, they were like, hey, do you want to come sit with us? I was like, yes, <laughs> I do want to come sit with you. I need your help because I don't know how to top off my phone, you know, uh-huh. all these different things. There's um, so many things like that that you don't think about. In, yeah. In the middle of that, you're there to try and do mission work. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the midst of all the culture change and everything like that. What kind of work were you all doing? So our team... Well, my, my team previously, and, and now to clarify, we're both under the same organization working with a team that my wife has been a part of all along. I guess that's an important clarification. We're working with unreached people groups in China, so places where the gospel has not yet 
firmly taken root where there's no church, especially, um, oftentimes no translations, um, places where basically if, if people wanted to know about Jesus, they would have no way of finding that out, much mm-hmm. less probably even knowing about the name Jesus. And how much of China falls into that category? About 80%. Um, you know, China's just one geopolitical country, but within China, there's 550 different people groups, and 450 of those are still unreached with no access um, to the gospel. And mo- a lot of these people groups have their own languages, their own ethnic identities, their own cultures. Um, Mandarin Chinese is only one of the languages spoken in China, which is something I didn't realize Mm -hmm. um, before I started to learn more about China as I felt called there. Yeah, it's almost like if all of Europe was just one country. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But in China, the the Han Chinese, the the main Mandarin-speaking people group, do make up the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's about 550 unique ethnicities, people groups, nations inside of China. And yeah, about 81 or 82% of those would be considered unreached right now. And so our our team is working in partnership with Chinese believers and Chinese churches to see the church planted in those areas, to see Christ glorified there. Um, Because right now, um, you know, we've all heard about how the Chinese church has grown a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is pretty much all the growth has taken place within the Mandarin-speaking Han Chinese people group of China. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's why one important aspect of what our team does is trying to make connections with the different church networks within the Mandarin-speaking population of China to help them see, oh, wow, there's still all these different ethnic minorities within our own country that have never had access to the gospel. And they have much less problems getting into these areas than um, someone who's obviously a foreigner like we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to even conceptualize what that's like because I feel like if you you haven't been there, there's not really American equivalents for Mm -hmm. the situations that you're trying to navigate. So your team is there Mm -hmm. and... um, you all are working together to network, to do evangelism. If, if we're sitting around in a meeting with your team and you're saying, okay, for the next six months, here are some of our goals. Mm-hmm. What's the strategy like? Um, how are you trying to say, here's where we're going to either plant or we're building relationships or we're um, just getting to know different people in the city? What, what's the strategy like or what, what's day-to-day life like in trying to accomplish the goals that you have? I would say that depends uh, upon who you are on the team and what phase of adjustments you're at. So, for example, when we go back, both of us still have a lot of language learning left to do. Mm -hmm. So we will be re-entering primarily as language students, cultural students, and so we'll have weekly, monthly annual objectives in terms of language acquisition, cultural acquisition. We're learning Mandarin first, but we do have the hope of getting to work in and minister through a minority language as well. 
at some points. Um, alongside language learning, there's tons of opportunities for ministry, for connecting with people. Language learning is inherently relational, right. no matter what. Yeah. So there's certainly ministry goals mixed into it, but a lot of it comes into the broad categories of learning about language and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, uh, especially probably our Chinese teammates, they spend a lot of time doing recruitment, mobilization, and training. Mm-hmm. So they have some of those more direct connections to um, the networks of seminaries or small house churches that are kind of underneath the government's radar. Um, so they can more easily visit those communities of people, um, cast vision, meet with the people who are interested in learning more about how to make disciples and plant churches. How do you do that in an unreached people group? And they help provide a lot of the training for um, locals that are interested in doing that. Let's yeah. let's talk about that for a minute because I feel like that's something that from either American media or kind of Christian news you hear a lot about. Okay, there's an underground church. Mm-hmm. Seminaries kind of sound like, wait, what? There's seminaries, you know? Yeah. But then you see every now and then, you know, the government maybe cracking down and closing a church, or you see mm-hmm. what we what looks like to us persecution of religious groups and not just Christians, obviously yeah. persecution of Muslims and things like that. From our perspective, it looks like that's a really um, restrictive environment, and I know it is. But then you also hear the church is is thriving, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, and is really growing. Like on 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 a on a, you know, from the level of maybe a, a pastor or from somebody who is a Christian in China, what what is it like to have church or mm-hmm. um, even to have a seminary to train pastors? How do they go about doing that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people probably do have a different notion of what underground church means than what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Underground church basically just means it's not officially approved by the government. So there there are government-sponsored churches in China, which some of them seem to kind of be vaguely gospely and do a lot of good ministry but the government will keep tabs on all of those people and will certainly influence what is said or not said from mm-hmm. the pulpit. So in many cases, you've probably heard of government saying that the crucifix at the front of the church must be taken down and that you know the chairman or uh, prime minister has to be put up instead. Right. Um, that would be kind of a classic thing. And the government-sponsored churches have to do it. Well, it makes you think about things that in America, number one, you would never think about in terms of um, what you will and won't do mm-hmm. as a church. I mean, I just think about the decision-making process of, okay, where's a line we won't cross? You know, where's a line? It's like, okay, that's more culturally, it's different, but it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. And you hear things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. you hear about, the, you know, the Catholic church and the way that they're going to relate to the Chinese government versus these underground churches. So mm-hmm. you're saying that there's a list of things maybe that you have to abide by. Certainly they're watching over what you can and can't say. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of putting it. And the under, uh, the underground church would be anything that's not that, basically. And so there's certainly underground churches that have hundreds of people gathering together each week. Uh, sometimes they, they own buildings and have large facilities. I say that's less and less common now. Um, I think the Chinese government is especially skeptical of anything that competes 
for allegiance to the mm-hmm. party. Part of it, I, I can't help but think that's because they understand something fundamental about human nature mm. is the message of allegiance yeah. to Christ and the message of the government are are in competition with each other. Yes. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that even points towards a, a very interesting notion is my wife and I, to the eyes of Chinese government officials, it doesn't make any difference if we work for the CIA or if we work for a Christian missions organization. Mm-hmm. In both cases, we're subverting the state, basically. Right. And so that, that's just kind of a fun tidbit. But yeah, what would you add about the underground church or seminaries? Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of the work that we hope to do, we s- still have some of those first steps to complete, like fulfilling our language proficiency goals and things. But our teammates who are ahead of us in that, the ministry that they do probably resembles more of what people think of ministry, maybe in acts looking like, mm-hmm. where you have these intimate communities of faith, um, where numbers are multiplying, but I guess one illustration is um, that there's this terminology of an elephant church or a rabbit church and an elephant, the gestation is, you know, I don't know, maybe like almost two years or Uh it's a long time, but then an elephant just has one elephant calf and then a rabbit can multiply super rapidly and their litters are a lot bigger. And so just thinking about, um, especially when you're operating under, um, an oppressive government, you want to be able to multiply rapidly and minister um, just really efficiently even. And so it's really a lot about stewarding your relational networks. And, um, you know, if someone were to see us doing ministry, um, it's maybe doesn't resemble passing out tracks on a college campus or something like that. But it could be sitting around a table at a at a tea shop, discussing the Bible or um, elements of Chinese culture, and that being the setting in which discipleship happens, where um, church formation happens, even. And I mean, most of these churches that are being planted aren't bigger than 10 to 15 people. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that each one of those people is reading the word daily, is obeying the word daily, and has each of their own social networks that they're stewarding to make disciples and show them how to form churches. Mm-hmm. So it's just a lot more organic so that if the government comes to you and says, well, what? where's your building? Oh, we don't have a building. Well, who's your pastor? It's like, we don't have necessarily one pastor. Yeah. Or a paid pastor. Or a paid pastor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I heard an analogy years ago and it was a business analogy and it was, it was talking about organizations, spiders or starfish. And you Mm -hmm. know, with a spider, you have like a, a big body and these little legs that go out. And it's like, if the body, if something happens to the body, the spider is done. And then the starfish, uh, which I haven't verified this biologically, but I've heard can live, you know, with just one leg because it's a decentralized yeah. kind of yes. organism. And, you know, it sounds to me like what you're trying to build is something that can 
survive and multiply and function in small groups because every person is mm-hmm. owning yeah. the mission. Mm-hmm. And, and not just that, because I think, you know, we all think of owning our own faith, but saying, if there's going to be a church in my community, it's got to be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't just say, well, some pastor is going to do the work or, you know, some missionary. It's like, it's got to be you. Yeah. And I wonder, what have you seen as far as building relationships with those people, seeing what faith looks like there? You know, if, if somebody feels like, I've got to be the one to share my faith. I've got to be the one to grow. I've got to be the one that's, um, you know, going to tell my friends about Christ. What do you see in Chinese believers? What is it like when you meet these people? I think it's a huge privilege to do ministry in a place where honestly there's less baggage with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, people we know doing ministry and church planting and evangelism in the West, that almost seems harder sometimes than what we have <laughs> to do. Because um, if we see a friend come to faith, we get to say, all right, look, let's sit down and read the Bible. We read the Bible and we say, all right, now let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do based on what we just read. Yeah. And we listen for a few minutes and say, what did the Spirit say to do? And oftentimes it'll be, I think I need to go tell my mom about this. So, okay, well, let's meet up next week and you can tell me how that goes. Wow. And so just the notions that people have of what Christianity is, of mm-hmm. what knowing and loving and serving Jesus is, you start from nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really special to get to do that. And so it means that in many cases, um, there's opportunities to have really vibrant, brand new believers. Mm-hmm. I, I think many of the people who our team have seen come to faith are sharing their faith with like dozens of people, you know, within the first hours of them coming to faith, you yeah. know, just cause they're like, of course this is normal. Like this right. is what you do when you become a Christian. I've never known a Christian, but I guess yeah. it's what you do. Um, and so, and so it's fun and it feels like a real privilege and it, of course it's challenging for us to, um, to have to evaluate, well, what kinds of notions and ideas about being a Christian have I picked up over time too? Yeah. What do I want to hang on to and steward and what's, should I maybe reevaluate and look at again through the lens of scripture and with the spirit? Yeah. And I think just up front, so many Chinese believers have to assess the cost immediately because um, it could mean parents strongly disapproving and not wanting them to be a part of the family anymore. Or it could mean um, different kinds of surveillance or action from the government. Or, you know, for some of the locals that then feel called to move to one of these unreached areas, those conditions to live in are really difficult and... Yeah, just their their quickness to assess the cost while also their quickness to assess the worthiness of the cost and the worthiness of the mission in Christ is just, it's challenging and encouraging to us too. Um, yeah, so it is really an honor to get to work with Chinese people and to see their faithfulness, mm-hmm. even in the absence of extensive resources or knowledge or sometimes not always extensive training or things. They're just ready to be faithful. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we talk about how in the West, the sign of maturity spiritually, of discipleship, of growing in Christ, usually means knowing more. Mm. How many different ideas have you steward? Oh, do you have all these different theories of ways to interpret this or that text? What hermeneutic do you prefer? Oh, why? Mm -hmm. And I think those are great questions, but the principal measure of maturity and of, um, I guess, what we value most in in these networks is faithfulness and obedience. Mm. And if faithfulness and obedience is the metric that you value, then the person who's been a believer for an hour can be faithful Mm -hmm. and can be obedient. And of course there's things to work through listening well and learning well and all sorts of other things. But, um, it is, it's kind of a switch that has benefited us as well in our own lives and walk with Christ to say, we, we do want to be knowledgeable and wise people, but what does it look like to chiefly value obedience and faithfulness? Mm-hmm. I think that's really challenged us. Yeah. It's funny to hear you say that in some ways you feel like it's really a privilege. I mean, and when you're describing that, I'm like, man, yes. <laughs> in the midst of tons of other difficulties and um, inconveniences, suffering, you know, you think about, wow, to have people who convert and know Christ and immediately start to share their faith and be faithful is a really amazing part of the work that you guys are getting to do. What are the things that you look forward to um, when you go back? And, I mean, I can hardly think about you guys going back without thinking about the the coronavirus and Mm -hmm. thinking about the world is just a different place than it was even three months ago. So you guys come back and get married, think that you'll go back pretty quickly and now have been waiting. Mm -hmm. What, what's it going to be like going back? Yeah. Um, we're really excited and you know, we're going back to a city that we've both lived in before. So there's still Chinese people we know there. Um, before I came back to the States, I had one of my teammates and then one of my Chinese teachers. They were the two people who came with me to the airport at 5 a.m. to help me load all my bags and get checked into my flight, knowing I wouldn't see them again for at least a year. And thinking of like returning to see that teacher Mm -hmm. again. Um, it is just really exciting and, and we know that there haven't been the best conversations online and in the news about China throughout Mm -hmm. this whole coronavirus process and even just to show up again and to say this doesn't change my view of the Chinese people or the country I still love those people and so even just choosing to go back and to have a presence there I think will demonstrate our love and commitment to them. Definitely. Yeah. And I think on a, on a practical level, we have lots of ideas about what coronavirus means for going back, but Mm -hmm. the reality is it's unprecedented. Yeah. Mostly at least. Yeah. And so week by week, we're still getting a clearer or maybe clearer (laughs) image of what it looks like. We still do hope to get to return at the end of the summer. Presently, China's closed. Mm-hmm. They're not allowing foreigners in at all. 
but we are looking at, well, what can we do now? Can we go ahead and apply for visas and be ready if it does open? And um, we've been doing lots of language study and preparation here. That's probably the thing we spend more time on than anything. We're still learning and studying. And so our, in, our intent and our hope is to be back, but we, we don't know exactly what that process will look like between now and then. Sure. On, um, a, on a wider note, I think we're both excited to go back for the food. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Chinese food is amazing and it's so diverse and food is like the center of their culture mm-hmm. and their language. I mean, the verb to eat makes its way into so many different expressions in the language even. And you can ask a Chinese person, tell me about the food that you like to eat. And they'll talk for an hour straight because it's just extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been spending some of our time these last couple months learning how to cook Chinese food. Oh, yeah. And I've been sending some pictures to my friends back in China and, you know, they're excited to, for me to come back and, and cook for them. Like, yeah. I'm not sure, so sure about that yet. But we've just been trying to find many ways to continue to cultivate a heart and excitement for China and mm-hmm. learning about the culture and appreciating the culture even while we're here. Um, and then knowing that we'll only get to share in that more with people when we return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to ask two Two questions for people who are listening, for me, never been there, probably don't get to see anything more than what you see on the news. What's something that you learned or that maybe we miss about being in China, just the Chinese people living there? And then the second part of that would be, what's something that you want us to know about the work that's being done there, the mission work that's being done there? I think Chinese people are so kind and hospitable you know um, the Chinese people that you see on the street and that you talk to in the markets and who invite you into their homes are so different from the ones in offices in Beijing shouting rhetoric back and forth you know with the White Mm -hmm. House in DC and in the same way that most of us would say, you know, those politicians over there don't represent me or my views or the way I feel about all these different issues or the way I want to live my life in these different ways. I think that's at least as true (laughs) for Chinese people. And, um, and China is so sophisticated and and you could say that on a technological level, they're Mm -hmm. technologically sophisticated, but, but also, the language and the culture and the philosophy and the way of seeing the world is so, so different that just the endeavor to learn to think like a Chinese person and to find beautiful what they find beautiful and to find interesting what they find interesting and and even just steps of like logic and the way that you make sense of and unpack meaning in the world and all these different things is... is so different but really incredible and fascinating and um i think i think for me it's just kind of reminded me that western views of things and western ways of making sense of the world um aren't absolute 
And also, I think that there's elements and facets of the gospel that come to light in a place like China that we miss in the West. Mm -hmm. Communal ideas of being with God and shame and honor themes running through the gospel and lots of other things that I I think have made my faith richer because we've gotten to spend time with other cultures and other ways of seeing the world. Yeah, and just knowing how diverse China itself is. I mean, we have been living in the southwestern region of China, which over half of those different minority people groups are in that one region that we live in. So that means when we go to the market in the city, even, we can tell based on what kinds of traditional clothing or head wrapping or um, even skin tone, you can tell which of these Chinese people are coming from different ethnic minority groups. Mm -hmm. And so they have different kinds of cuisine. They have different music. They have different languages. And just seeing that on a daily basis, I think, is just really beautiful. And just makes me think of, you know, the end of Revelation 7-9 talks about how every nation, tribe, and tongue is going to be around the throne of God. Mm -hmm worshiping and it's every single one of those nations every single one of those people groups not just every single country on a map but every single language in the world and that means all 550 plus people groups in china will be worshiping and you know that's not the reality yet Mm -hmm. but living in the middle of that and thinking wow there's going to be such beautiful noise in heaven one day when we get to hear this new language with their own drums and ways of singing and things joining with us in the chorus. And like, hopefully food. And food, yes. <laughs> that, yeah, it's just every day is an ability to step into that vision, even as we wait for it to be fully realized. Yeah. It's an amazing vision and something we don't think about enough, um, that God has a vision beyond Christianity in America. Mm-hmm. You know, Christianity in whatever little subgroup you find yourself in, there's a, there's a global vision, and it's not a homogenous global vision. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an individuated global vision of everything all together. And uh, that's a good reminder that that's the goal. Mm-hmm. And... I can't imagine anybody sitting here listening and not asking, how do we help? How do we pray for you guys? How can we help? How can we encourage you all? How can we partner with you? What are the things that, as you're thinking about going back, you're like, this is what we need. This is what our partners really need. These are the things you can be praying for. Yeah, I think what the two of us would request first is ongoing and persistent prayer Mm -hmm. for us, for our team, for the country of China, for all of the people, groups, and nations, and tribes, tongues in the world. Um, Prayer, some way or another, really matters in in all that happening. And so we love prayer for that on a practical level, a prayer that doors would open back up into the country that we get to return soon. Yeah, you guys and so many other people, I was just blown away 
when I was I was listening to Mike Pompeo talk about how the State Department was coordinating trying to get U- U.S. citizens back, yeah. you know, when we got into February, March mm-hmm. timeline, and it was like, we have 50,000 plus in the first wave of people coming back. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of State Department employees and stuff, but it, the thought crossed my mind, I wonder how many missionaries there are who are trying to get back to the U.S. and who whenever things open up are trying to get back Mm -hmm. to where they were. It was just kind of a cool thing to think about, like from all over the world, people now thinking, well, I got to get back to the ministry that we were doing. And so just praying for, and for the people that stayed. I know there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. that stayed too, but just praying for doors to open. Mm -hmm. And just even, it seems funny sometimes to pray about logistics, but Mm -hmm. just like that there would be flights, that there would be trains running again, that there would be opportunities to get visas and all that kind of stuff. Those offices would be open again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that there would be workers raised up from the harvest. Mm -hmm. We think, I think for good reason that most of the unreached people groups in the world today will be reached by near culture missionaries yeah it's not primarily going to be north americans entering the 1040 window right who are going to see the gospel taken to the most difficult places it's going to be people from the harvest yeah and so we're excited for that and praying for that and i think i think relatedly um and on a very practical level it sounds like we can give you some really basic giving information yeah we can give you an account that the funds will go specifically towards indigenous Chinese workers on the front line, people living out in huts and villages, Mm -hmm. trying to share the good news with people who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. Trying to learn languages that have no written form. Just, yeah. Yeah, so so we can give you that information. And we'd really encourage people that um, if they're interested in giving, that they give there. Definitely. And we can also link our accounts if people are interested in supporting yeah. us as well. I'll definitely put that. If you are listening to this on the podcast or on the website, that'll be in the show notes on there or in the post. Um, we want people to support you that want to. And uh, obviously we want people to pray, but we also want people to give. And so um, for us, we're a ministry. You guys are a ministry. Mm-hmm. We want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth and we want every person to know. And so, yeah, if you feel led to give, give. And we want to put that link uh, wherever it's easiest for you guys to give. And so like you said, there's different options and those will be pretty easy to navigate, I think. But um, beyond those two steps, what what else? What are what are the things that people can do, even, even ways that maybe we can learn more to know what there is to do to help mm-hmm. people who are doing what you're doing? I would point towards the Joshua Project. Uh, it's a website that has massive amounts of information on where the gospel is in the world and where it's not, on unreached people groups, and there's just endless amounts of information there, and they even have a people group of the day. Mm-hmm. So every day on their homepage, they feature different people groups, and basically none of them, any, any of us have ever heard of. Mm-hmm. But it's an opportunity where they say, anybody who wants to pray, here's the pe- people group of the day. That's a great resource. Um, if people want to hear more from us or ask us questions or anything like that, 
uh, I'm sure they could contact you Mm -hmm. and then you can connect us via email that way. Absolutely. And I think another thing is just to ask God to open your eyes to the nations around us here too. I mean, even unreached people groups aren't just across the world. Mm -hmm. There are people coming from those nations that live in our neighborhoods now. And just even as Americans, um, yeah, we don't have to all move to another country to engage cross-culturally and Mm -hmm. to participate directly um, in God's mission for the nations. And yeah, they're everywhere (laughs) at the grocery stores and in our parks and even us having some experience living in another culture, it was never an awkward or an unwanted thing to have Mm -hmm. someone from that country initiate a conversation with us or want to try and help us figure something out or, you know, just knowing what it's like to be a foreigner in another country. The hospitality of the locals means a lot. Mm -hmm. And just realizing that here in America... We're the locals, right? And we can show hospitality to foreigners, and um, yeah. Well, and one of the things I love about both of your stories is it seems like you had a clear call, whether that was a you know just a moment in time or whether that was a season. But the desire really grew mm-hmm. for both of you guys as you're telling your stories. It wasn't just like. You know, one day I didn't care anything about global missions, and the next day I was like, I'm 100% in, sold. It was maybe, and then we'll see, and then a trip, and then, oh, this is a passion that I have, and it grows. And I think one of the things I would hope for the people listening is that this would be a step in that process, too, is that you don't have to just all of a sudden decide, I'm picking up and moving. But just taking those steps. Um, You know, in college ministry, when I was doing college ministry, at UCO, there's over a hundred nations represented there. Mm. There's huge opportunities yeah. to get to know people from all over the world here. Yeah. And maybe one day God will call you to go. Yeah. And we pray that that does happen and we hope that it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the last question I want to ask you guys, you've been in Oklahoma city for a while. You talk about how great the food is in China. Have you found anywhere here that has food that's even remotely like home? Honestly, no. (laughs) I kind of figured that was the answer. Yeah, but I think something a lot of people don't know is that Oklahoma City actually has a great Chinese market, like Asian market, right next to the Golden Phoenix restaurant over Mm -hmm. off Klassen. Yeah. And you'll walk in and it'll be like nothing you've experienced. But we walk in and we're like, wow, this reminds us of China. Hmm. They sell different kinds of vegetables and produce that you don't see at Walmart here. You, It's things you would eat in China, but they aren't served at restaurants in America here. You can buy those things there. The aisles are full of the different Chinese vinegars and oils and, and things. And so um, it's a great place to go if you just want to even experience a little bit of the culture. I think that's a great place. Um, they also have like frozen dumplings and things like fresh made noodles and things there that we've tried a couple of those and it's been good. Um, 
but it is hard to find really authentic Chinese food made at restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why we've taken to trying to yeah. cook it on our own a little <laughs> you bit. You had to take yeah. it upon yourselves yeah. to, to cook. <laughs> yeah. Which if you're looking to go in that direction, that market does have excellent ingredients. Yes. Yeah. Well, guys, would you mind if I prayed to close us? Yeah, we'd love that. Father, thank you so much for these two and um, for the way that you have orchestrated the different stages of their stories. We're not just taking them uh, across the world to serve you and to share the news of Jesus Christ, but also to meet each other. And Father, we pray that as they're preparing to go back, that you would open doors or that you would strengthen their team members who are there. Um, Lord, for everyone who's contemplating going back, uh, to what probably feels like home um, and just waiting for those doors to open. Lord, we pray that you would give them endurance. Uh, we pray that you would keep communication open. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would make ways for them to be able to go back and do what you've called them to do. Father, we pray specifically for this city and for this team and the work that you've placed it on their hearts to do or the relationships I'm sure they're thinking about every day and that they can't wait to get back and see those people. Lord, for the people who maybe just became believers and uh, a lot of the team that was supporting them isn't there, Lord, I pray that you would continue to guide them, speak to them, um, or that you would convict them of the things that they need to do and and the people that they need to talk to. Father, I just pray that uh, you would bring a harvest and that you would raise up people to reach every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And Lord, uh, we know you'll do it because you've promised. And so, Father, use each of us in the way that we can be used uh, to do that. And, Father, strengthen these friends as they go back. And, um, Lord, give them encouragement. Give them trust in what you've promised and what you provide for them. And, Lord, give them favor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Guys, thanks so much for telling your story and for coming on. And, uh, like they said, if you want to get into contact uh, either click the links we provide or send us an email, info at soweespeak.com, and we'll orchestrate however we can uh, for you to be in contact. Yeah, thank you for having us on. It means a lot. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.